Thanks, brother. Amen. It's a privilege to be here with you all today. Been doing youth together with your church for years. We've only ever seen this room in chaos at night. It's always dark outside and it's, it's so much more beautiful during the day. Um, it's really special to be here to listen to you guys tell me about how you found youth because you never told me during youth. It's nice to hear. And um, Josh as well for coming. He's one of our youth leaders. He's a leader also to... Um, he's in the same group as Sion, who's mentioned before. Thanks for coming, Josh. So... What I want to do, I've got a couple slides. Have we got these slides? Yeah. What we're going to do is I want to look at the nativity scene. This is a scene that we see everywhere. We see it all the time. We go through the shopping centre and we see something like this sometimes, maybe less so as the world moves away from the true story of what Christmas is really about. But in this picture, what we actually see is so many details. In fact, I want to argue with you, every single detail is providentially pointing us towards Christ and what he will fulfill. It is actually an image of the gospel. I want to take the gospel and I want to see how we find it in this picture. And I'd love if walking away everyone could see how this picture points to the gospel by every detail. And I also want to look at another picture that we're given given in, in the Bible of the gospel, where we actually originally find it as well. And I want to compare these two images. And I want these two images to remind us that the gospel doesn't just save, that it sanctifies. And it's always been one gospel that has ever saved any man under the name of Jesus. So, we're going to begin actually by reading. We're going to read the time that we first see the gospel. Now, I want to remind us what the gospel actually is. When we look at the narrative of Scripture and we ask ourselves, what does God require of man? God is holy, therefore, we should be holy. And yet, we fall short. And so the gospel is that all that was required of man for us to do has been done. It has been done by His Son, And because he has achieved all of that for us in him, all of the blessings of obedience are given freely to us who believe in him to enjoy. And this includes eternal life in the courts of God forever eternally in heaven. This makes us who believe in him forgiven sinners who suffer our sin in this life, but we are sanctified by a greater knowledge of God and what he's done. We're still tested by these, the trials of living in a fallen world. The temptations of life, we still face them. We never reach holiness in this life, even though we believe, even though we're forgiven. But we grow in it, according to the law, by the grace of this gospel. Growing in joy and in peace, forsaking our lot in this world for the world, for gaining Christ, for the world to come promise of heaven. Now, there, there are some Christians who think that the gospel, this good news, was actually born the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Was the gospel a new thing brought by Jesus? Perhaps in the Old Testament, the law was the way by which people were once saved. 
you might ask. Perhaps no one before Christ could be saved due to the high bar of the law, but a few righteous exceptions. I think it is an important truth to be regularly, to have it regularly reaffirmed that it has always been and will only ever be the one gospel by which any man will ever be saved. The law only ever damned us. And the gospel was the promise of what, not what we could do, but what he would do, did do, and has been done. And so that by believing in him, all of that would count for us. And once God has completed his promise in making sinning believers right with himself through a sacrifice that only he could provide, the truth is that the gospel has existed ever since sin has. And God first preached the gospel to us in the garden. So this reading, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Genesis 3. I'm going to go Genesis 3, verse 6. And I'll just give you a little recap to take us up to this point. We know that we were made right with God, and we were with God, and we were ruling over creation, tending to his garden. He'd given the woman to the man, and he says, you can eat of any tree you like. And there's the tree of life there, and there's the tree of the knowledge of evil, good and evil there. And he says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we find ourselves right in the thick of um, Eve has been lured into by the serpent, who we understand theologically to be the tempter, Satan, to actually disobey the great commandment of God, to turn away from trust in him. So verse 6 says, just reading a little bit about this story for us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man of his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have not commanded you to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And then God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and, on, and dust you shall eat all your life, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then he goes on to explain the reality, the consequences of the curse upon, of sin reigning over Adam and Eve in their life. And then in verse 21, before he sends them out of the garden, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, Adam and for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. So we have all the imagery in this story given to us now, looking back, having the rest of the scriptures reveal truths to us about the gospel, to be able to find the gospel in this story, even just at this moment. So what we can say, can we go to the next slide? So what we can say really happened here, where the gospel ends, is that we were in right and good relationship with God, but we did not know God. We were with God, but we did not know him. We know that this is true because the evidence of this is that we sinned. If we knew God, we would know better. To fully know God was to know not sin. Jesus was the only one who ever fully knew God. He knew not sin. If we had known God, we would have trusted God. And the serpent could not cause us to doubt the Father. And the second obvious evidence of the fact that we did not know God Fully. We knew a little bit about God, but we did not fully know God. Was that once we sinned, we hid from him. Did we not know that he was omniscient, all-seeing, all-knowing, all or omnipresent, all-present, inescapable? Once we had tasted the knowledge of good and evil, we then became aware of our sin. We became ashamed of it. We had broken the commandments of God, a holy God. We were defiled, corrupted. We hid in the dark place in the garden, naked and afraid, awaiting the judgment of God. And this is what it is for man, for a man to become aware of his sins before God. He sees his need for salvation, for mercy. And so God confronted them. God called to the man and said, Where are you? God knew where they were. It was a call to confess, a call to repent. And man confessed his shame, his fear and his terror, surely of the consequences that God had promised. For the wages of sin is death. God owed them death. And after hearing the accounts of Adam and Eve, leaving them without excuse, he proceeds to explain the consequences of their disobedience, the curse that they brought in to reign over them. And yet, instead of taking their life in that very moment, though death would eventually come, he makes them a promise. A promise that one would come of the seed of the woman. Can we go to... Actually, just hold it, hold it there. Well, actually, yeah, no, there, there we go. Let's roll through some slides. So I did. I have neglected these slides. Next slide. So this is obviously us afraid in the garden of our own sin. Oh, there we go. Cool. This will give me a little more control. No, that's all right. Just a nice quick push. No, all good. Um, this was the promise given, actually preached to Satan in front of Adam and Eve, is this. And the words here, offspring, actually in the King James... And in actual original Hebrew, give us this. 
A promise that one would come of the seed of the woman. It's interesting because the woman doesn't actually have seed. Seed comes from the man. So for the woman to have a seed, well, that's prophecy of the virgin birth. For one to come from the seed of the woman, this is to be one who was, we know now, is because he is born of God and of the woman. He is truly God and he is truly man. That would crush the head of the serpent, though it would cost him his own life. A promise that we could believe in, by which we could be made righteous, which is right with God. The good news is that God would crush the serpent and the sting of death, sin itself, that he would, ne- he would bear the curse brought onto man by sin, onto himself, take it to the grave, and that Adam and Eve's sin would be undone. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. He says, For we came into sin by Adam, and we will be saved by Christ. Many call this first, this passage right here, the Proto-Evangelium, which is the seed of the gospel that grows throughout scripture as you trace this gospel. God reveals more and more and more about it until by the time we come to it in the gospels, it is a tree of life for us. And so confronted by God, Adam and Eve, God did not bring forth as he righteously could justice, but instead mercy. The Lord made for Adam and his wife. Have I got it here? That's coming up. Where is it? There we go. Serpent crusher. This is interesting. And then the Lord made for Adam and Eve garments of sheepskins. And then he clothed them. He covered over them. He sent them away with life. Clothed in the covering of the skin of a ram. Innocently slaughtered for their sake. To cover their guilt, their shame and nakedness. Banished from the garden, but not forever. Did we have that one? There we go. Banished from the garden. Whilst no exact promise at that time was made that humanity would ever be restored to the Creator at that time, they now knew some things about their God. They knew that their God was one that showed mercy, that atoned for His people, that covered their nakedness, by the skin of another, and by the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb, he could cover them. He promised a deliverer through the one who through one who would come of the seed of the woman. And it was by this gospel and this promise, and there has only ever been this one gospel that Adam and Eve believed in, by which they were saved, and that by which I am saved. God builds on this gospel later on. He preaches it to Adam. He says that same offspring um, to the promise made to Abraham. Through the offspring that comes from you, all nations will be blessed. Um, And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So by believing in what God said he would do through the offspring in Abraham came salvation for Abraham. We also have a passage in um, Galatians that tells us that this was in fact the gospel that was preached to Abraham by God. And he would be the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations would be blessed. The son of Levi, the mediator between God and God's people. He would be the offspring of David who would sit eternally on the throne forever. 
the suffering servant told to us in Isaiah, who would bear our iniquity, who would be one like Moses, raised up from among his brothers, whom we must listen to. God wasn't going to bring this offspring until he had done all of the foreshadowing, all of the revealing necessary so that when Christ was born, he would fulfill. And it was at the inn of Bethlehem. If our first image is the gospel in the garden, we now have the gospel in the nativity scene. It was at the inn in Bethlehem where salvation was born. This one, the one that through whom all would be saved, in a humble manger, at an inn, the promised one of God was born. Emmanuel, God with us. And how is it that we see the same gospel betrayed at the inn in Bethlehem? I want to start to color this in for you. And I want, um, if we could try to remember these things too, every single detail was arranged by God to tell us something about what Jesus would live and die and do for us. Bethlehem was actually significant because it was the place where David was born, the place where he was actually anointed and consecrated to be king. And he was also buried there after his life. David was made king by prophet Samuel as a young shepherd boy. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. The young baby would grow up to become the bread of life, the spiritual nourishment of his people. He was born in a manger, which was literally a feeding trough for sheep, for his sheep. And Jesus would grow up to say that Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. And if you eat of me, you will never go hungry. If you drink of me, you will never go thirsty. For he is the living water and the bread of life. My body and my blood will be poured out for you. And we have bread and wine to represent Jesus as body and blood by which we are saved. He was born in an inn that hardly had any room for him. In ultimate humility, humility he was born of a poor woman as a lodger, a sojourner who was in this world, but not of this world. His home was in heaven. He was born amongst lambs. He was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The lamb in the garden, who was just like the lamb in the garden who was slain so that our shame may be covered, just like the lamb who was caught in a thicket of thistles, that provided a substitute for Isaac on the altar, the son of Abraham. We are the sons of Abraham. And this lamb went on the altar in place of the son of Abraham. Just like the Passover lamb, whose blood was drawn upon the doorframe of the believers in Egypt, that God's judgment may pass over them. And then first called to witness this newborn salvation were the shepherds. They were Jewish shepherds. God first called the Jews, the Jewish shepherds, and then he called the Gentiles, who were the Magi, the wise men. Called from afar. The Jewish shepherd shows us that Christ came to be chief shepherd, to call his own sheep by name, that he would lay down his life for them to show his love for them. And the Gentile wise men called from afar, Though it wasn't actually, you'll see this, wasn't actually the same trip. It was actually years later. He was a toddler. Um, but you can tell that when you use this to tell the story of the gospel to a friend. Um, they brought three unique gifts 
and they all tell us about his work. These are actually the same three gifts that in Exodus 29 and 30, God asked his people to bring in order to be able to establish his tabernacle, his dwelling place amongst his people. I want you to bring me gold, frankincense and myrrh. He's setting up his tabernacle right here in his son. Gold, because Christ would be king. Because the inside of the tabernacle was decorated with gold. When you walk into the tabernacle, on the walls you'd see in foiled gold, you'd see trees, like in the garden. This displayed majesty, beauty, prosperity, glory. He was given gold because God's holy ark was gold, of which hosted his dwelling presence. Frankincense, if you know what that is, it's like a, it's a perfume um, that was set apart for special worship use. Frankincense would be given to a priest because Christ would be priest. The perfume, perfume would actually be set up to be a burning incense in the temple. There would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It would actually fill um, the tabernacle with God's dwelling aroma. You would smell that and you go, God is here. It was set apart for worship. It was, it was to be used for nothing else. It was set apart, it was also set apart to prepare and consecrate the dead for burial. So we're seeing the foreshadowing of even the work he would do on the cross as Christ would be set apart for burial to go to the grave for three days. Myrrh, which was oil, because Christ would be prophet. The anointing oil for kings, priests and prophets. For special roles, if someone was anointed for a special purpose, the Spirit would anoint them for their task and the oil would represent that. And that would be used to consecrate anything that was to be set apart to just be used for God in worship in the temple would be consecrated with this oil. This is holy, set apart for me. And so on. You could do this all day. As you go through, I encourage you later um, to continue to do this and go, how else does it connect? You know, even the gifts that were given to Jesus um, would have served to provide for the family as they went on in a journey. They didn't have any money, but now they can sell these things and make money and God's actually provided for them as well. But we can continue to see how all these details point to the gospel. In the Old Testament, the gospel was for those who believed, believed in what God was going to do. If you lived in the time of Christ, it was the gospel was to believe in what he was doing. And for us now, it's to believe in what he has done and what the Spirit is applying to us in salvation. God gave us the law. We, we can remember um, that it's not Adam's sin that makes us guilty. It's actually our own sins that make us guilty. We can know that we're damned not by looking at Adam, but simply by looking at God. He is holy, sinless, stainless, uncorrupted perfection, and we can see that we don't measure up. God gave us the law so that by it we would know that we need a gospel. We are in sin apart from God's saving work that we cannot do. It has to be done for us. And Romans 3 tells us that we all fall short. No one is righteous, no, not one. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus tells us that even our, it's not just the laws 
we obey with our actions or disobey with our actions, but Jesus says, even lustful thoughts make us guilty of adultery in our hearts. He says, anger with a brother makes you guilty of murder in our hearts. To desire things that belong to others, Christmas time, presents, makes us guilty of coveting. It's one of the commandments of God in our hearts. We're breaking all of the commandments all the time, even just in our minds. So how then may we be saved? Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are sick and beyond cure, who can know it? The psalmist says, surely I was conceived in sin from birth. Jesus says, he came for the sick, not for the healthy, for the sinner, not for the righteous. And Romans 3 says there is no righteous. We cannot obey God by the law with our works, but we can obey God by our faith in his works. So my last point really is this. We can see these two gospel images. We can compare them. We can see how it's the same gospel on display at every moment, every scene throughout Scripture. We see the gospel reaffirmed, reproclaimed. This isn't just a gospel that saves. Knowing this gospel isn't just about salvation. It's a gospel that sanctifies. This is to be made new, to be made like Christ. God's work for the sinner isn't merely to save us just from the penalty of sin, but it's actually to draw us out of the reality of our sin of which we're enslaved. A well-known Jewish scholar says, it took 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get the Egypt out of Israel. It takes a lifetime to be made new, yet never complete, because we live in sinful flesh in a fallen world, until death and our translation onto heaven, awaiting God's promised judgment into heaven and earth. And yet, knowledge of this gospel changes us. Knowing more about what has been done for us changes us, and we live out of a gratefulness of that. Remember, it was the lack of knowledge of God in the garden that left us susceptible to turning from blessing to curse, from freedom to slavery, from return from obedience to rebellion, from life to death, Turn back. Turn back. And if you've already turned and you're already in Christ, continue to turn, not by the will of man, for that doesn't do much, but by the grace of God. It is knowledge of Him that turns us to Him. Don't pursue obedience. Pursue the gospel. Pursue knowledge of God and let change and obedience be the results. Isn't it so easy to just focus on trying to change instead of actually focusing on Christ and changing because of that? And that's just the result. A growth in knowledge of God and what he's done for us is growth and freedom of Christ in Christ. It's growth in joy and in peace. It is freedom from depression and misery. Let us commit ourselves unto this gospel. Whether it is to be saved, if this is the first time you're hearing it, or it's to be further sanctified, to turn further to him, knowing further his grace. This is really my last point. Um, let us remember the signs this Christmas of all that the Father had promised, all that the Son had achieved, and all that the Spirit applies unto us. God's promise is that we will all be with him 
all those who believe in him will have eternal life in him and will be with him forever. Next slide. This is the application to take home. Um, it's pretty hard to see for me all the way over there. Maybe you can see it over here. I was thinking this would be the way to reflect and digest this message would be to look at the picture of the nativity scene. Maybe you have one at home set up with your decorations. And just how does that connect to Christ? How does that connect to the gospel? How does this connect to the gospel? With every little thing. Or you can do it with your family, with a friend, over lunch today when you go home. And then number two would be this, is just using the nativity scene. Can you tell the gospel? Can you use everything in there to tell the story of what God would do, did do, has done, it is finished for our sake, for his glory? I'm going to pray. And then Josh is going to do benediction. Dear Lord Jesus, this gospel, Lord God, has existed since our fall. Lord Jesus, we did not know you, but because of everything you've revealed to us through your redemption, your redemptive work, your saving plan, you are revealing more and more and more about yourself to us than we would ever have known. Lord God, we thank you that you have taken sinners who deserve nothing from you and you have given us everything. Lord God, we did not live a holy life. You did. And yet you say that it's ours. We deserve to die. And you said, no, I'll do it. Lord God, and I pray that you help us to understand more and more and more so that we may change. We may, may be made like you, Lord God, and that this Christmas, as we, as we come closer and closer to the day of which we celebrate when you were born, that we will be able to remember how all these signs and celebrations, they're all yours. You prepared them to point to you. Let all of it point us back to your word so that we may know you more. In your name we pray. Amen.